We get to pick up in Acts chapter 3 today, we get to continue our journey. We started, what, four or five weeks ago now, about five weeks, we're into chapter 3. It's actually not a bad pace. I decided, I, I could have spent a couple more weeks definitely in the first two chapters, but I decided to go ahead and move on to chapter 3. It's just too exciting. Chapter 3 really is so cool, and I know I say that about every chapter of every book of the Bible I ever preach through, and I guess it's good I feel that way, but this is such a cool chapter. It's such a cool story. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn with, you, uh, turn to, with me to Acts chapter 3. Um, we're going to read through it together in a minute. This really feels like a shift a little bit uh, from the introduction and the origin story of the apostles and the church that we got in Acts uh, chapter 1 and 2. Uh, we've read about why they were in Jerusalem to begin with, how they received the Holy Spirit after Christ ascended, uh, and how the church has now been growing rapidly through the unifying power of the Spirit and through the work that he's doing through the apostles. They recognize that everything that's happening is the fulfillment of prophecies from the Old Testament, as well as of everything that Jesus had personally promised to them directly. And Peter has been kind of leading the way and helping everyone else get up to speed on that, to explain to everyone what's happening, while also continuing to call out the corruption that Jesus was calling out. And ultimately, that resulted, the same you know, corruption in the leadership was still there that resulted in Jesus' wrongful death. So there's a lot going on for everyone to be processing at once. But like we'll see, like with Peter and John, all of the disciples were continuing to boldly worship God in the temple. They weren't in hiding anymore. And they're publicly proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. They're teaching anyone who's willing to learn. And as they go about doing what they know how to do, what they, their already established rhythms of life, God is working some astonishing results that they could never have expected. Well, they probably could have because of they knew Jesus. But as, like, as Mike has been you know, saying and hammering, this book of Acts is a book of actions. Uh, and that comes out in the majority of the book. That's, it's story. It's narrative. It's, it's an action story. But also in significant sections of prose discourse, like we've seen with Peter, uh, Peter's preaching and teaching. So we get a little bit of each of those in this chapter. Uh, like we did in chapter 2. It certainly has some amazing action, and then it's immediately followed up by an explanation of what happened and why by Peter. The true meaning and significance underlying you know, just below the surface of what people are seeing on the outside is someone who couldn't walk and walk again. But what does that really mean for them, and what does it mean for us? So let's start by just reading through the chapter together. I'm going to read first from the NLT. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. It's a good spot to be asking for money because people going into the temple to worship God should be the people who know that it's important to be kind to people who need kindness, right? And generosity. So that's where people would go to beg if you were a Jew. In one place. Peter and John looked at him intently. <laughs> and Peter said, look at us. Apparently his gaze was you know, not directed at them. Look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. 
But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. And then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized he was the the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade, where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. Ah, a crowd. Let me talk to them. People of Israel, he said. What is so surprising about this? Why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy, righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now, repent of your sins, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then, in times of refreshment, will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. And Moses said, Anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. So this story and the subsequent speech given by Peter is one example of what we read in chapter 2 of Acts, that fear came upon every soul. This is in verse 43, chapter 2. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. It says many. This is one of, of many. We're given one example of what that looked like. That these 
Signs and wonders and mighty works are showing the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to his disciples that they would do, what he said was they would do even greater works than he had done. He says in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. In other words, you're going to continue my ministry. Don't think that things are going to slow down. This is, we're just getting started. And at the end of Mark, in Mark 16, 20, there's also another reference to this kind of activity, kind of in a summary. Mark 16, 20 says, They went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. So that's kind of a looking forward, big picture statement. But it's, this is now we're getting examples of what they meant by that. The story in Acts 3 here that we just read is the first miracle that we see recorded after the inauguration of the church on Pentecost. So other than that was obviously pretty miraculous, the speaking in tongues and everything. This is the first one that's kind of externally focused, um, <coughs> excuse me, towards specifically um, continuing that ministry that Jesus started, going into the temple. Um, and remember, all of this is happening at the temple, the center still of Jewish worship and cultures. <laughs> and the apostles, you might think, would be trying to escape this place, this institution that was responsible for the execution of their leader. But rather, they're attempting to reform and bring this temple back to life by speaking the truth of Christ, even from within the walls of the institution that conspired to kill him. Same leaders who killed Jesus are still going to be in and around this same temple, and the apostles know that. But as Jews, you know, Peter and John were, were Jews. They could walk right up into the, the court of, uh, from the court of women into the court of Israel, which is where most people think is where that gate was somewhere. We're not sure exactly which gate it was. It doesn't really matter. Where non-Jews would kind of be restricted more to the court of the Gentiles, right? They couldn't go as close to the center of the temple. They had a little bit of extra privilege. They could walk around a little bit more freely. They had the right to be there. But can you imagine the spiritual and emotional tension that these men were walking into if there were you know, leadership present, which we see there, there were pretty soon, but they do so with humble boldness. They have so much selfless confidence in the message that they've been given and in the person who gave it to them that they will follow his leading anywhere to proclaim him. This here at the temple is just the beginning, but it sets a precedent for them to be willing to walk into danger, potentially, and a pattern that plays out for, for multiple apostles, not just uh, Peter and John, but the rest of the stories that we'll read throughout the book of Acts. This might not be the first place you'd expect some high-profile people of interest to, in this massive conspiracy that's still ongoing. It's still fresh, very much. You wouldn't expect them to be drawing attention to themselves. But here they are, not only showing up for their daily prayers, not only talking to God, both of which, you know, those are good things that God loves. He's talking about God with other people, but actually doing something for people with God, to bring life and healing to people for the purpose of drawing their attention to God so that more people will start doing things with God too. So naturally, the first place they should go is to the people who already are showing up to worship God. That's why everyone, most people are there at the temple showing up to pray. 
They're doing what they know how to do to worship God, what they were taught to do to worship God. Peter and John are not there to stop people from worshiping God. They're just helping people better understand the God they're there to worship and how to properly worship Him. So they can continue to worship God, not just inside the walls of the temple, but everywhere they go. As Jesus made abundantly clear, they weren't even getting it right inside the temple yet. Jesus made that very clear when he showed up to the temple. So they're trying to do some work there. And he even says at the, beginning of his, at the end of his sermon, we've come to you first. The gospel has come to you first, the Jews. It's a gift. So it makes sense. Peter and John are continuing to participate in the Jewish customs and rituals for worship, along with all the other faithful Jewish Christians that are worshiping with them. They're not abandoning Judaism but rediscovering and reshaping their faith with new understanding of the Messiah and their acceptance of this person, Jesus, as being the ultimate fulfillment of that role of Messiah. Eventually, in history, you know, a couple more, few more decades, I believe, Judaism and Christianity experience a more formal split. And that coincides really with political movements at the time, and Rome and, and um, Jerusalem having conflicts and the temple being destroyed. But before that, you know, that line hasn't been clearly drawn yet. The temple is still there. That that line is a little bit more fuzzy. They're still figuring out what it looks like to be a Jewish Christian, what their transformed lives and their transformed faith were becoming and what it would look like. And for now, that meant that they were meeting in their homes, for the people who actually had homes in the city, as well as in the public temple, for as long as they could. But their faith in God's presence was no longer dependent upon the location of their worship or the existence of that temple in Jerusalem. When they recognized that each one of themselves were temples of the Holy Spirit, God's presence was with them wherever they went. So of course they would start with the temple, but it's just the beginning. We're gonna, we're, we've continued to see God at work through the church throughout history, even you know, through painful transitions and despite massive human corruption and evil working both within the church and outside of it, both against it, we'll get glimpses of all that kind of beginning to play out and how that looks even in the book of Acts as we continue through the book. But for today, let's just continue to uh, return to the miracle of this lame man suddenly walking. I, again, just think this is a really fun story because as shocking and miraculous as, as it is, there's really nothing contentious or scandalous about the miracle itself. Later on, we'll see, you know, they're not left alone for very long. The leaders are annoyed at what they're teaching and they come to arrest them. But no one's really stopping them from healing and no one really, like, this is just happy. This is a happy story and it's great. Again, it doesn't last long, but, you know, we can focus on the happiness before they get kicked, up, kicked out and locked up. Um, it's a beautiful story of restoration and of praise where a simple act of healing for someone's physical condition results in that person and those around them turning their focus to God and filling them with awe as they worship and praise him. That's the purpose of this miracle. Suddenly everyone in the temple is actually experiencing and doing what they came to the temple to experience. Whether they realize it or not, they suddenly are truly worshiping God and praising God. At least for a moment, that, that moment, that glimpse, that picture is such a gift. Because even though 
the apostles are arrested moments later, you know that multiple people's lives who experienced that were never the same after that, after having experienced and witnessed this. So let's talk a little bit more about that miracle. First of all, the, who is this guy? Uh, Luke tells us he was lame since birth. You know, he couldn't walk, which means he couldn't work. So in that society, it really meant that he couldn't do anything, you know, to, to survive on his own. So he's looking for money, presumably, so he can eat. If you don't eat, you don't live. It's as simple as that. So he was surviving completely dependent on the kindness of friends, family, strangers. We learn a little bit later he's over 40 years old. So he's been doing this for quite some time. Not that 40 is old, but it's a long time to be begging for money. All right? You're welcome. He's been doing this for, he didn't just start doing this yesterday. You know, he's been doing this his whole life. So when the disciples first turn their attention to him and say, hey, look at us, he gets excited, right? So how do you think he felt when they said, oh, we don't have any money? Why are you wasting my time? Yeah, can you just imagine his heart sinking? Like, it says he was glad, he was excited. Oh, someone's looking at me and, they, you know, they're actually going to do something for me. But if they don't have money, what could they possibly do for him, right? In his mind, the only cure for what ailed him in that moment was money, which is logical. It wasn't wrong for him to be asking for money. It, did, it just didn't even cross his minds that his legs could be cured. To him, that's not even a possibility. So for him, the only way forward to survive another day is to somehow get some money so he can get, you know, or maybe for a few days worth of, of food, whatever his next meal would come from. So he did have someone, maybe some close friends or family members, we're not told who, but someone was kind enough to carry him to the gate to provide transportation of some kind from one place uh, where he, to a place where he could be relatively safe and occupy himself, hoping to find some kind strangers. Doing the one thing he knew how to do, begging. He had nothing to give and only knew of one thing that he could ask for. He didn't know what else to ask for. But God, in his great mercy in this man's story, skipped right over what this man was asking for. Sometimes I think God gives people what they're asking for, even if it's not what they need, until they realize what they need. In this case, he just kind of skipped right over it, gave this man exactly what he needed. And to me, that just shows the character of a good father who understands the true needs of his children and provides for them, regardless of what we think we need or want in any given situation. Again, this man is never criticized for asking for money. What else could he have really asked for without sounding arrogant with the information that he had? All the more gracious is God's glory revealed when it's upon someone who has been so humbled in this way, they don't even know what they need, and yet God still pours out his, his grace on them. And this cure was, was instant and undeniable. For himself, as well as for anyone observing. And not every act of healing or of restoration by God is like this. Sometimes it's actually very slow and painful, the process. Sometimes we don't under, always understand that it's happening, how it's happening, why it's happening. That's really the entire story of humanity, is this long, painful, and sometimes confusing story of, of healing and restoration by God in his great love for us, in his desire to clean up the messes that we've made. Sometimes all we can do is say, you know what, God, 
I am sorry for contributing to this mess. I know that I've contributed, even in ways that I don't know. But I'm here, I'm willing to help clean up in any way, just show me how I can help and not make it worse. And that's all God is asking us, to to posture ourselves in that way. And that's essentially the, the, the posture of the apostles that they're modeling. They're going about doing what they know to do, but they're open and willing to participate in what God is doing. In this case, this this man asking for money, they say, well, we don't have money, but we do have the gospel, and we know that he can heal you. We know that Jesus can heal you. And we know, let me go back, this is, I think, my favorite. Verse 16 is kind of key here. Through faith in the name of Jesus, it's it's revealed kind of afterwards, this man knew that Jesus was at the the center of the power healing him, if nothing, for no other reason that the apostles told him, and and he believed. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes, is what they say. And in this case, it's obvious, and I think it's obvious when God is there doing things, for those of us who know him, (laughs) you can see it. And the response is important. Immediately, the man began praising God. You also, also notice he tried to cling to Peter and John, which is understandable. I want to stay close to the guys who healed me, too. It's just a natural inclination. But it, it doesn't sound like he stayed with them for very long because I don't think he went with them in the, the custody of the Jewish leaders when they got arrested. Um, nor should he have, right? That wouldn't really have been, right? He has a story to tell now and people to share it with and legs with which to carry him around to tell his story. So it would be kind of a waste for him to go get locked up when they're not looking for him, right? So at some point, he's going to have to let go of them, but it's, it makes sense. And in the meantime, the rest of the people in the temple, at least a, a number of them, clearly grasped. They saw a miracle had taken place and there was no doubt about its authenticity, And although the crowd knew that God had acted to heal this man, many of them were still very unsure of the significance of the event. Again, what does this mean? What just happened? Well, we see what happened, but why? How? Their curiosity and their questions then provide an opportunity for Peter. It facilitates that opening for for Peter's sermon. Their shaken imaginations are like openings in in the crags of their their hearts and minds for the transformative seas of truth to take place. And it does. I think sometimes I think that's what God does to kind of shake us loose a little bit, shakes our imaginations loose and realize, so we realize that he is so much more than we can imagine. And again, you read it a little bit further, about 5,000 more men were, were added as a result of this event. I want to spend a few minutes looking at the, <laughs> the explanation that Peter gives, starting in verse 11. So I do actually, I'm going to read through this again in a different translation. It's like Peter's surprised. People are amazed. But he takes advantage. He has this captive audience, and he explains the meaning of this miracle. It provides, again, proof of the gospel and of the church's message that God raised Jesus from the dead as Lord and King. If he could do that, then surely broken legs he can fix, right? So let's start reading again, uh, just starting in verse 11. And I'm going to read from the LSV, which is just a little more of a literal translation. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them, 
at the portico called Solomon's, full of wonder. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know, and the faith which is through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. To him you shall listen to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also proclaimed these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. All right, so... I'm going to read a quick excerpt, and I probably, you know, I need like a blank screen there. I don't have anything up there. I apologize. But there's an excerpt from a commentary I have that I think is rather insightful, and I want to read. It's the teacher's commentary by Lawrence Richards. The New Testament church has fascinated Christians through the ages. The excitement, the vitality, the depth of fellowship portrayed in early Acts has attracted us. Many have sought to recapture those days, some by a re-emphasis on the Spirit, others by restructuring the church as an institution. Yet no one can duplicate any moment in history. As we study these first chapters of Acts, we do discover principles which will vitalize Christian experience. We probably will not need to abandon our old, but we will need to make a fresh commitment to the God who worked so powerfully in the men and women of the early church. He lives today, and he is fully able to work just as powerfully in us. But every every person's story is completely unique. One thing we can learn from is Peter's presentation of the gospel. There's about a dozen different ways I could have decided to preach through this chapter, and I don't know if Mike is going to want to come back and and cover some more, because there's so much in here that I can't cover at all. But there are some observations of prevailing themes throughout Peter's two sermons so far. He's preached two similar. And so I just want to look at a few. (laughs) Peter's prevailing preaching points. How do you like that? So first of all, 
he always starts with the person of Jesus, the historical person who actually lived. And he's very specific. Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, the Nazarene, like this Josh, not just any Josh, this Josh, that you all know who he is, where he's from, and what you did to him. That he was crucified. And in this case, it won't always be the case, in this case, his audience, at least some of them, are complicit, directly complicit in his crucifixion. That not only was he killed, he was also raised. He was resurrected by the power of God. That all of this that happened, one through three, all correspond to Old Testament prophecy. This is all fulfillment of, again, in this case, scriptures they were all agreed on. And that specifically, this Jesus that we started with is in fact the long-awaited and promised Messiah. And that finally, crucially, the only appropriate response to this truth, the only response to Christ, is repentance and faith. The only response, the only appropriate response to the truth is to make a decision to follow God and to walk together instead of just going our own separate ways, trusting that he knows how best to care for us and protect for us, protect us for eternity. So then I guess the question is, what does it look like to walk with God, right? That's always the question every day of every moment of every day. It depends on who you are and what moment of your life you're in. But no matter what, in any given situation, one righteous action that we can always count on is that of simply praising God all the time, especially when he's given us so much to be thankful for, especially when he works wondrous healing and restoration and miracles in our lives. But that's not every moment of every day. Seeing a man who was once lame and now walking and leaping and praising God, that's certainly enough right there to at least draw one's attention to the gospel. And then one has to make a decision of how to respond. Now, that, that man might not have understood all six of those, those pretty preaching points, right? Those, <laughs> there's another alliteration. Uh, yet, yet, I think he would come to understand, but that doesn't stop him. His limited understanding of what just happened doesn't stop him from praising God. It sure sounds like he was clinging to them, right? He would have stayed and learned as much as he could to understand more. I like to speculate. He probably did, as long as he was allowed to. But in the immediate awake of his salvation, all he needed to do was proclaim his own salvation and the goodness and the power of God in saving him. He didn't really even need to say anything, did he? His whole life in an instant became a testament to the power and the glory of God. Praise God. That's awesome. I think I have some references up here. Yeah. So Isaiah, praise God for his, for his actions. These are the, the, what does it look like to walk with God? I'm, I'm leaving you with three action points, I guess, that we can take away. Number one is to praise God for his actions. Isaiah 35, 1 through 10 says this. And it's just, a, I'm going to read a couple passages of praise. The wilderness and the desert will be delighted, and the Arabah will rejoice and flourish. Like the crocus, it will flourish profusely, 
and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. Strengthen limp hands. Give courage to the knees of the stumbling. Say to those with an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Then the scorched land will become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water, and the haunt of jackals its resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes, and a roadway will be there, a highway. It will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not pass by on it, but it will be for him who walks in that way. Ignorant fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there. But the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of Yahweh will return. And come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting gladness upon their heads. They will attain delight and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Again, it's chapter 61. The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may show forth his beautiful glory. Then they will rebuild the ancient waste places. They will raise up the former desolations and they will make new the ruined cities, the desolations from generation to generation. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers, but you will be called the priests of Yahweh. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations and in their glories you will boast Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, and instead of dishonor, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting gladness will be theirs. For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. And in truth, I will give them their recompense and cut an everlasting covenant with them. Then their seed will be known among the nations and their offspring in the midst of the peoples and all who see them will recognize them because they are the seed whom Yahweh has blessed. I will rejoice greatly in Yahweh. My soul will rejoice in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its branches, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to branch out, so Lord Yahweh will cause righteousness and praise to branch out before all the nations. So these passages in Isaiah are the passages that Jesus cited when he was asked by John the Baptist's followers whether or not he was the promised one. He quoted these passages and said, 
implying his own healing signs, which included things in these passages, causing the lame to walk, the blind to see. These things were glorious to behold and visible to see plainly for anyone with open eyes. Brothers and sisters, today I exhort all of us to let our eyes be open to the glory of God around us. And in doing so, let us not behold the glory of God and withhold our praise. Let us respond to his call willingly and with gladness. And beyond that, with our eyes to be opened by his spirit to the wonders of God's grace and mercy and power to allow him to transform us, not into something other than ourselves, but into the God-honoring, glorious, liberated expressions of ourselves that we were created to be, not the fearful and hateful and destructive versions of ourselves that want to run away from God. In this way, we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds and spirits. We're being refreshed. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, I think is another... um, Oh, and I do have... So renewing your mind with God. Romans 12.2, I won't read it, but Romans 12.2 is a great uh, reference to remember and memorize and write down, just being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then in Ephesians 6, finally, as, as Paul puts it, putting up, put, taking on the full armor of God. So being dressed and ready to actually join the action. Praising God for his actions, realigning your mind to God, and then getting dressed to join him in the action. Paul calls it armor, that we are, as as a warning, to be able to resist in the evil day that the evil one may flee from us ever further. As we draw closer to God in subjection to him, having done everything we can to stand firm, trusting God to handle the rest. When we're in that posture, the devil will flee. Let us stand firm, therefore, Having put on, I'll paraphrase a little bit, the mobilizing, leaping, dancing legs of truth. The pants of truth. The the body armor, the breastplate of righteousness that is doing right by God, living rightly. It's like an exoskeleton of protection for our souls to do righteousness. Let's lace up our, our boots of readiness that comes from proclaiming peace. And on top of that, leaning into the shield is like a force field of faith that shields us even from the fiery darts, missile strikes of the evil one. And let us receive our salvation from Christ as gladly as we would receive a helmet to protect us in the heat and thick of battle. Wielding what we have been given, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God and His Word in all His power, not for rebelliousness, not for death, not for our own power or wealth, not for attention and fame, but to bring love and life and peace to the world. In a world that is not always full of life and love and peace. So glory and praise go hand in hand. One begets the other. Glory invites and beckons and demands the gaze of of those surrounding the glory, like fireworks in a hidden dark valley, all of a sudden everything around can see what's happening. The ensuing praise just expands the influence of such glory even further. 
It's a rather arrogant thing to proclaim glory, to praise a thing or a person, whether myself or otherwise, demanding attention, unless the glory is truly worth beholding. So in other words, when we jump and leap and we draw attention to ourselves, we dance and sing, whatever we do to draw attention from our surroundings, whether it's simply walking outside and communicating with people, it ought to only be ever at the forefront of our minds to be praising God and to be pointing others to him. And when we do so, it is glorious and worth beholding. If we do it just for ourselves, you know, kind of the worst case scenario, we're not going to mess up God's plans, but it probably will end in embarrassment and pain for us. And worst of all, isolation ultimately is what it leads to. Isolation from others and isolation from God is something that he allows us to kind of crawl away into if we so choose, but he's always calling us back. Not that he's ever gone, but that we sometimes just choose to ignore what he's doing. All the earth and the heavens are declaring God's glory. And when we join the chorus, it will draw the gaze of those around, whether it's friendly or otherwise. I can't help it. Has anyone seen the, the movie Trolls? You've seen it. <laughs> it's actually a great movie. There's a point in the movie where all the trolls are throwing this big party in this dark valley where they're all trying to stay hidden from the, the bad people. I forget what they're called. These big... Bergens, yeah, the Bergens, which are like big trolls. But the, the good trolls are like singing. Everyone's actually good in the end. It's, it's a great movie. But they're drawing attention to themselves with this huge party. And it's drawing the attention even of danger. But to me, that's kind of what the apostles are doing. They're drawing attention because they know that what they're drawing attention to is worth it. And that there's nothing that they really need to be afraid of, even if they're inviting danger, even if they are struck down in their bodies. They know they're doing what God called them to do, and they know there's nothing to fear. So, draw attention exuberantly, but not flippantly. You know, when we're declaring God's glory, when we're praising Him, we, it's, it's good, you know, but it does draw attention, so we shouldn't waste it. Be watchful and alert and ready. God's ready for us. He's ready for you right now. He was ready for you when you were born. He'll be ready for you when you die. But he's also ready for you right here, right now. Are you ready for God? Do you want God? He wants you. Talk to God. See, hear, and read what God has said and done for thousands of years and in your own life. And you continue to do so in community with others. And I can't give you really any other advice than that. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for providing everything that we're enjoying now and, and ever will enjoy. Thank you for providing everything that we don't enjoy. Help us to be thankful for your loving guidance and discipline, especially when we have things that really make us happy and comfortable and are, are fun. You know, those are blessings from you. But help us to also recognize that your guidance and discipline is sometimes difficult and to recognize that and to just turn to you and lean into you, you and your arms. And that you would help us to be continually enriched by spending more time together. That you would help us to live our lives together. Show us how to love each other better and through doing things together that we would come to know you ever more deeply, but not in isolation. Help us to listen to each other 
and to talk to you. Ignore other people's mistakes like you ignore ours and help us to just see things from your perspective. Remind us and guide us in how to respond to you when you do reveal yourself to us. Whether it's in unhindered, unashamed praise to you, just giving all glory to your name. Also with an insatiable thirst for for understanding and of knowledge of, of knowing you. It's good to know more and, and learn more and explore those things. To know your word better each day and to know you so that we can continue to pass on what you gave. Use us, your church, your body, we pray, to bring more healing, more life, whatever that looks like, in the short term, in the here and now, so that people all will turn their attention to you forever, for eternity, our healer and our savior. In Jesus Christ.